Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Pitchers, have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. So, Joel, seen any good movies lately? No. <laughs> I haven't. I tried to watch the... I always yeah. love that question. <laughs> what generic? Two? I, you watch old stuff. Well, no, I don't even know what I was trying to watch on, on Netflix, honestly. Um, it, but no, I haven't watched any good movies lately. Mm-hmm. And it seems like no one else has either. Well, I mean, I think it depends on what it is. My son went to, uh, my son's been to a movie theater. He's four years old, um, more than I have. So he went with his with his uncles uh, when they were in town and uh, went to Mario, Super Mario. And I was just telling you before we started recording, because we were obviously... Uh, as much as people think this is all spontaneous, obviously on the podcast, we do a little bit of planning and we were talking about the, I guess, update on the box office. Um, either is it back? Is it not back? We've debated it before on the podcast to say, obviously it took a huge hit during the pandemic and what was it going to look like? What's the change in, in that kind of culture around going to see that kind of entertainment. And so Mario specifically which is kind of this new, I guess animated movies aren't new, but this kind of subset, like this is uh, taking a story from a video game that was popular and now putting it on the big screen and attaching a lot of, I would say, the brand of a lot of these actors is really, really good. So you got the Chris Pratt, Charlie Day in that, uh, Jack Black as Bowser. So like a lot of big names. Like, oh, and like you think about those people and like, I mean, obviously that's what studio heads do, but you think about all those people I just mentioned and you're like, man, those guys, like their voices, like you just automatically identify with those. So they're just so perfect for movies like this. Anyways, it's right now it's the second highest grossing animated film of all time behind Frozen 2, which is nuts. Like I never would have predicted that. And then you kind of to what you had shared with me and then I guess you kind of play that off each other to see you know maybe it's hard to, t- to know exactly where the movie box office space is going is like The Flash which is I mean definitely it's in the comic book area obviously that's been around for a long time in terms of studios making movies it's part of the Warner Brothers like the Batman Justice League um, conglomerate and they have not like notably have not been as successful as Marvel uh, across the board and kind of all movies that they've done for the most part. So that has been an absolute flop saying that Warner brothers is set to potentially lose up upwards of $300 million on, on the release of that movie, which is I'm assuming getting their attention. Now there is some caveats with that movie, I think, and not to get into too much detail, but they had some delays, I think in terms of the release time, they had some legal issues with their head actor, Ezra Miller. So I think there was probably some 
other factors at play as to why potentially it flopped a little bit because the it had been pumped up for so long, it's in production, and then it gets delayed. I'm sure that doesn't help at all. But it is interesting. I think it's going to continue to be interesting to see what actually plays and what works and what ends up continuing to fill our movie theaters. Because from, again, me not going personally, but talking to people who have gone recently, the theaters that have, again, the more unique experience around it, where you have the better chairs, maybe a table to eat at, you go a little bit earlier, get a drink, you make it a night out, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. We can always say it's always been the famous date night thing, dinner and a movie. You can do dinner and a movie maybe at the same place now. You can have a more relaxing experience, more of a private experience at some of these theaters. And I think that's still going to be there Is in the long though? term. I don't know. I, I just, I, I've had a lot of people give me positive feedback from it because, again, I have not been for probably two years yeah. to a movie. But... From That's hearing, because from, you have young children. So and uh, yeah, so it's anecdotal, obviously evidence that I'm getting too. Against like it's just one offs here and there. So it's it's tough to know. But in terms of what's churning out at the box office and working, let me run something by you here, and you let me know if this is my I'm right about this. But I think that, um, and what I've noticed anyways is the type of movie that does well in the theater is a specific type. Um, I'll use an example of what has done really well. So um, everything, everywhere, all at once hasn't blown away at the box office, but it's won an Oscar right. for Best Actor. It's the movie with Brendan Fraser in it. Um, I think it's objectively a good movie. I think that's The Whale, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so you don't even know the movies. You're man. right. I got them all mixed <laughs> up. I'm, uh, basically, what I'm saying is, is that um, you, you, then you take a look at action movies Mm -hmm. and the stuff that's dominated theaters of late has been marvel they've disney in general Mm -hmm. has put together the this whether it be frozen 2 or all of the marvel series or um their other all their other um ip Mm -hmm. it does well it markets well at a theater it's the type of movie you think you'd want to go to at that theater you don't go to the 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 rom-com at the theater anymore that's kind of that Netflix and chill vibe of a movie. And I think that there's this now, now bifurcation where you have a very large, like I used to, when I was growing up, I would go to a rom-com at a movie theater, mm-hmm. um, but I had a tube TV at home, right? Technology, I think has um, gotten so good that you now experience a different type of movie at home versus another type of movie at a theater. Right. And it needs to be is, Tom Cruise that you're going to see or the rock or, it needs to what be that, that voice that you recognize. It needs. It can't be the that artsy fartsy movie mm-hmm. that might get into con. Like that's not the movie you're going to see. Galaxy Cinemas on a Thursday night with right. your wife. So I do believe that there is, and this is obviously recognizable. I think a lot of um, Netflix now that they're going direct to um, consumer or they're choosing to go to theater. It's very much dependent mm-hmm. on the type. the type. Yeah, and like I think you used the word brand earlier, maybe before we started recording too. Like the it's branded movies that maybe seem to be working the best and something that's either nostalgic or it's, <clears throat> excuse me, super specific to uh, people like actors or actresses that are that are in certain movies and whether or not that's going to play um, for to get people to come out and watch them in person and spend that 
maybe it's going to be at a premium, right? I think that might be the oh the thing too, right? Is it's going to be at a premium cost as, versus as you point out, like maybe that's and I think maybe we talked about Matt Damon and talking about this on a Hot Ones interview potentially like a few months ago, and he was talking about how hard it is to make a movie now and it, like the Passion Project movie, although you still see them to a degree, but the way to release that movie is completely different, and the way to get that movie funded everything like that it's a lot harder so those types of movies don't get the same kind of play the same kind of marketing the same kind of did he speak to how how to make that movie still well i think that's the thing is you have to go it has to be directly through these the streaming services but also and this is just my interpretation of the people that are able to still do them Mm -hmm. you have the ultra superstars that can take a back-end risk on these these movies for sure like you don't have to guarantee me my money on this passion project i want to do i'll do it for a hundred thousand dollars but i want 15 percent, or i want 10 you think about um wolf of wall street and the way that jonah hill and and um leonardo dicaprio they ended up basically doing the movie for free but they wanted the back-end economics right Mm -hmm. that is absolutely going to be on a go-forward basis how those things get done because you you de-risk it for Netflix and for whoever's producing it for you, and then you 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 take part in the the upside, right? But if you're if you're Samuel L. Jackson, you want to get paid for that that 800th movie that you're going to be in. So um, I, you know what? There's that difference, and it's it's just good to identify it. Um, but movies, you know, rough year, rough year, and you got to be a little bit lucky. Hundred percent. I think that um, we can confidently say that uh, the NHL had a very rough <laughs> Stanley Cup year. Yeah. So um, I, I think we're going to leave this to to you to comment on because I, I didn't even know they finished, actually. Mm. Congratulations to the Florida Panthers on a big win. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> Sorry. Incorrect. No, Vegas won. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, huge maybe, finish. Maybe the most epic Stanley Cup parade. Yes. Saturday night in Saturday night, not even after they're like, screw it. No one's going to be around during the day. We're going to do it at 7 p.m. <laughs> too hot on the, the strip. Yeah, that's true, too. The ratings came back and actually didn't end up posting them in here. But I think you and I were chatting about them back and forth on on text and anywhere, depending on which publication you're looking at kind of thing between a 30 and 40 percent drop. And. <laughs> it's just I'm not sure I, I'm trying I'm gonna try and describe this meme and maybe we can post it somewhere one time but it's I think I've seen it a lot out there but essentially someone drawing a horse and it's a perfect picture like an oil painting of a horse and then it ends up being like a four-year-old druid at the end <laughs> and so one of my followers on Twitter I I saw that and he was describing he said this is the Stanley Cup playoffs yeah so round one through to round four and it couldn't be more true like, I mean, we alluded to this when it first started and just how the ratings were crazy out the gate and the excitement level was, was nuts. And there was upset, you know, this is the typical round one of NHL playoffs that they've, they've really, even other people in sports talk about how exciting the first round of playoffs is in the NHL. And it's, it is talked about and known. So that is a good thing to be known for, but it'd be way better to be known for the most exciting final. And they just don't, it just doesn't get there. And I don't know what you do to change that narrative. Like essentially, I think obviously having huge markets at the end of everything. So if it was the Chicago's, the Toronto's, the Boston's, the New York's, I think they're very much still dependent on having those teams in there. Um, The other thing is with their, obviously the TV partners, like TNT is not a nationally broadcast 
network and like even ESPN now is fractured, right? In terms of its, so you're not on the NBCs, you're not on the um, the major major cable networks. And even though we talked about how cable is fracturing, it's still it's still a way into a lot of people's houses, uh, even though it is dwindling. And so that has also been an issue, I think, for them is the, you know, if you're more dependent on our, our regional fan following and then in addition, the the national, it make, it's harder to see it if you are out of market in, in general, if you are the kind of the, the non or more of a fair weather fan. So definitely a lot of fact, like the NHL is always going to come out and say like we were very happy with it and we're excited to see that we have our you know, an expansion team from the nineties who had never been there or been there once before and Vegas, who's been here for six years. And this is a great evidence that our, you know, game is strong and that growth is possible. And the, like they're looking to expand obviously to another couple teams, I would think in the next five years, they probably want to jump on, on this valuation high that they have on, on their franchises with the Senators sale recently. And then having, Vegas be a successful team right out the gate and Seattle as well having success in their second year making it to the making it to the playoffs that's a good little marketing tool when they go to new ownership in the I think it's rumored like Salt Lake City and Kansas City and maybe Quebec City whatever it might be the that's kind of the passion one I don't think Gary wants to go there but anyways there there's other American markets that they're interested in for sure. And seeing the expansion there. And I think that's a good way of saying, Hey, this is, you know, it's possible for you not to have a, a losing brand out the gate. And here's the blueprint for doing this. Please go talk to your fellow owners that have just had success with this. But in the whole grand scheme of things, I, I, there's a big thing to fix there. Like, um, the MB, we talked about how the NBA was even kind of more muted this year, but even still, like they basically matched their, their viewership over the last couple of years, even with a non-marquee final with, with kind of Denver, Miami in there. Mm-hmm. So it, when you just compare the two leagues, it's, it's pretty, the gap is still so big in, in terms of the ability to, to continue the momentum that they gain out the gate and, and kind of finish strong. So yeah. it's too bad. It really is. I mean, obviously hockey's a, you know, a sport that I would love to see be more successful and more people, love it and and support it but it is i'm not sure what the what the magic answer is in terms of in terms of getting there outside of the fact that it's takes so much luck we've talked about luck in 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 hockey and or in sports sorry in general and how hockey requires the most of it in order to be successful just with the the randomness of events and and certain position players and whatnot which is a really interesting thing to kind of dive into if if you'd like to research it but the the fact that you don't have if you if you don't luck into having those huge market teams in the finals then you are i think it's a it's an uphill battle every time to try and get the the ratings that you need at the end of the day so i agree (laughs) um now moving on to markets i think that i want to kind of just point something out really quickly that is just the story that that tells the last six weeks or six months. And it's seven stocks have done everything um, across the entire world Mm -hmm. effectively. And those seven stocks have accounted for the entirety of the um, market cap gains in the S and P 500. Uh, The rest of the world has struggled relatively when you compare it to big, bad America. And I have some data that 
it shocks most people. Whenever I talk to clients about this, it kind of shocks them. So if you were to, and for those listening that don't know about what a um, index fund is, if you had a global all market or all country index, it is based off of the market cap weighting. So market cap weighting is effectively outstanding shares times by the price. And that gives you the valuation of those businesses. Um, so now all countries or countries where you have publicly traded companies also have something fairly similar where you can weight these things. And an index fund is effectively a basket where you can throw all of these countries into one, buy that basket, and then own the growth of the world. Right. And now I think you know this, but as a percentage of that global basket of global publicly traded companies by market cap, what percentage does the U.S. make of that? It's got to be above 50. It is above 50. It's 61.3%, which is shocking given the fact that they are, what, 365 million people and the globe has over 8 billion. So as a percentage, Mm -hmm. that's not equal, is it? If anything, they're out kicking their coverage by about 10 or 11 X, mm-hmm. which is shocking. But people kind of understand it, right? Big birth, bad America. Yeah, the birthplace of now, capitalism. What would be the second largest country as a weighting inside of that? I'm going to go and say Japan, I would think. It is, which I think most people would think, well, China's taking over the world. Mm-hmm. Everyone's moving to the, to the RMB, which is their currency. Obviously, the U.S. dollar is failing. So how is it that the United States is 61.3% of this global market cap index and Japan is second with a whopping (laughs) 5.6%? The next country is the United Kingdom at 3.6 and then China at 3.2. China, the global superpower, undeniable. Their GDP of their country is darn near the same as as the United States, if not higher, Mm -hmm. um, depending on which data you want to believe. But publicly traded companies, the valuations of those businesses, the growth rate, even the the valuation, so the the multiple people will pay for a dollar of earnings in each one of these countries is different. People are paying way more for a dollar of earnings in America. You'll pay $22 for a dollar of earnings in in America, Mm -hmm. and you'll only pay $11 for it in China. And that's based off of just how much trust you have in that institution, whether or not you believe that their rule of law is going to actually allow for you to get a dollar out. And it's just risk factors here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to, um, to highlight this because what's even more interesting is the weightings of those five largest names inside of the S&P 500 or inside of America. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. And I think mm-hmm. I, I hinted at this a few times. So if he gets it right, it's because he kind of <laughs> is a little bit of a cheat sheet. But um, <laughs> is it shocking to you when I tell you that Apple is larger as a percentage in this index than the United Kingdom, China, France, Canada, Switzerland, Germany, Australia, and Taiwan. Well, it's not. And it's the fact that Apple and Microsoft are both larger than both of them. Actually. Know, so even crazier. So with your cheat sheet that you gave me as you alluded to, I was just going to answer and sound really smart by looking at my computer. Um, <laughs> the, the, the fact that it is that way is not shocking. Once you take into account the other data that you've been preaching the last couple months that you can read anywhere I, at right now, I think this has been talked about a lot in terms of the fact that this this bull market, quote unquote, is very unique in the fact that it's being driven by the seven stocks, as you talked about. And so if you were just to take that information and say, well, if 
the U.S. is 61% of this country-by-country index. And what's making up the U.S. growth, it's going to be these seven stocks. So then automatically, those just become the most prevalent and the ones that are going to have the highest percentage. So, yes, it makes sense. Is it a good thing? I'm sure you're about to tell us that it's probably not. I think I, one question before we move on into the, the U.S. and the, like the Apple and the, the seven stocks specifically, if you wanted to kind of keep going on that. But with so China being 3.2 percent, like do they think you think they like that? Like it's is it almost like a um, like there's not the country or sorry, the companies that would be a part of what makes up the Chinese index that would be a part of this, these stats. Is it good that they're not dependent on capital markets? Capital markets. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that liquidity is a good thing as a, a human being inside of those countries? I think that them constantly trying to get money out is, I think this is this represents a few things. And I'm a person who listens to um, cynicism and uh, cynicism being a podcast, but it's effectively this, it's Bill, um, mm-hmm. forgetting his last name, at cynicism, who has a podcast that talks about China, the market, its interactions with geopolitically with the world and with the United States and what they're, the CCP is constantly trying to balance. And that Mm -hmm. is a continued increase in the standard of living of the Chinese people Mm -hmm. while also trying to extend their reach geopolitically into other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And they recognize that in order to generate a more service-based economy, an economy that isn't based off of exports com- completely, one that, I mean, you end up having a better standard of living for the people that live there so that they can continue to be in control because it must be understood that you end up losing control as a communist structure yeah. when your people are unhappy. However, if you keep them motivated by a continued increase in standard of living, they tend to not care as much about not having as much control over their government structures, the way in which they influence their lives. Mm-hmm. So, but not too happy because then if they have too much money and power, then they leave. Yeah. And, and then they, they have be, too much influence yes, too. And then they yeah. move to Canada. So, um, <laughs> I think that it's important to recognize that they have to balance this, mm-hmm. right? So, while I don't think they're happy that their economy hasn't done very well for the last 7 years relative to the rest of the world, but more specifically America, their 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 rival, mm-hmm. They're doing it over a hundred year period, whereas the United States is constantly focused on the next quarter, right? They're constantly um, focused on profitability, on margins, on, on, on people making more and more money. And it has worked. It's worked a lot. And it's hard not to continue to bet on that. But as myself, I've long been a believer in global diversification. Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to view this as somewhat of an opportunity. And this is where I kind of want to delve or go off and into my own little rant here. And, I, and tell me if I'm making any sense. But the last six, seven months, we've seen the market, the S&P's up 11 to 14%, depending on what currency you use, Canadian or, or the U.S. Um, and it's based off of seven businesses. And I mean, Meta's up 135%, NVIDIA's up 140%, Amazon's up 60, 70%-ish. This, these are round numbers roughly. Don't take this verbatim. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple's up 40 or 35. You have Microsoft that's up quite a bit. Google's even up 30, 
And these are the largest market cap businesses in the entire country, yeah. but they're also performing the best. And when you look at why, it's fairly obvious. Each one of them has a piece, and I'm missing Tesla in that as well, but they all have a AI story. Right. And when you take a look at what's been, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but if you just look at the news in general and what all of venture capital, um, people that are, I mean, head deep in this sort of thing, they're all, this is just all the rage. And I mean, no one's talking about crypto anymore. They're talking about AI. They're talking about large language models. They're talking about the technology that enables these things, about the NVIDIA and AMD chips, the People now know what a GPU is, and I'm certain that a year and a half ago, they didn't even know what that was. It's shocking, right? And America is well ahead of everyone on this. And when you look at the individual businesses, you got Amazon that's developing its own chip. You have Apple that has, everyone's like, no, the you're, we're seeing a Apple iPhone sales drought that they haven't seen since like 2014. Yet the stock's at almost at all time highs. And you have um, a real change in what their their uh, the future story is of Apple, and it's actually based off of the M1 and M2 chips. It's based on the chips that they're building inside of their headphones. It's about their ability to run a large language model, a smaller one, on your phone and travel around with it. There is a huge um, shift in the reasoning for investing in these companies, which is quite impressive. Mm-hmm. And they're, the rest of the world hasn't been able to tell the same story. And, I mean, will they be able to? Probably. Taiwan has a reasonable um, opportunity here. I think the, the Chinese also probably do. However, most of that, that benefit has occurred in the NASDAQ and in the S&P 500. Thank goodness, because it's made my year a whole lot better. However, um, I think it's important to recognize when things have run a long ways uh, there's this thing in, in investing and in life called reversion to the mean. And not all things continue exponentially forever. Oftentimes, you end up getting what is called a, like an S-curve, mm-hmm. but you, you end up reverting back to what the, 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 the average is, right? And um, Datatrek had a really good email out last night that I read uh, while I was texting you about whether or not you're going to be here. Um, and they're just, they, they went out and they um, surveyed a bunch of hedge fund managers. And um, Bob Elliott, guy that I've been quoting a lot recently, also has done the same thing. I, I, I um, sat in on his hour-long session last night, or sorry, yesterday afternoon, where he he kind of delved into, and he runs a funds of funds. So basically, um, he he tracks hedge fund activity and rebalancing and where they're putting their money mm. and what are they betting on. Hedge funds have underperformed the index this year because they just weren't overweight tech, those right. big seven. And they've been in the camp that, and they're shifting into the camp where Chair Powell, the Federal Reserve, Bank of Canada, Europe, um, inflation is entrenched, especially in Europe and in Australia, uh, the UK most specifically. Mm-hmm. The United States and Canada specific, have kind of handled it, but rates are going to be higher for longer. We are not likely going to see, and they're positioning it as such, a cut in rates this year. And I mean, three months ago, we were talking about there being two by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. That is not how hedge funds are positioning themselves. That's not what the yield curve is telling us anymore. And when you start to look at where hedge funds are now positioning themselves, they're actually betting on or hoping that they can catch the index or 
and they're now rebalancing into financials, industrials, into energy. The, the areas of the market that has underperformed quite drastically. Energy is down 20, 30% this year. Mm-hmm. Um, those that were up a ton last year and held those positions through this year and didn't rebalance into tech, well, that's reversion to the mean. Yeah. And um, the, I recommend everyone go and read the, the data track release of this week, uh, sorry, um, Tuesday night. They had a really good breakdown of, of how this is being done the way in which people are positioning themselves for second half this year. And it's just, it's a story of seven that have already won and can they continue to do so? And is it likely that we're going to see a, a shift from um, high growth with in the, in the face of high rates mm-hmm. into companies that are cash flowing today that are making money today, but have a more limited upside potential. And, um, I'm not here to tell you which one is going to happen. I'm just telling you to, to go and take a look at it um, and um, make a decision for yourself. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that was interesting and um, important to, to, to recognize. Um, and before we kind of go from here, I'm actually getting a ton of action on and just response to our podcast and talking about housing. Mm-hmm. Housing is getting scary. Mm-hmm. Canadian housing more yeah, specifically. Canadian housing, yeah. um, there's a lot of people talking about a second half Canadian housing crisis where they were assuming there'd be rate cuts, but we're finally starting to see people having to refinance. Yeah. There's, there's stories of having, I mean, amortization periods in the nineties on some homes. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a good friend of mine who is currently shopping for a home in Edmonton. His, his wife's a, a dentist. He runs a business. They make over $400,000 a year. And he's like, Joel, I don't know how to, I can buy the house that we thought we were going to buy last uh, two mm-hmm. years ago. He's like, just to get a million dollar mortgage, which for yeah. listeners, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but that's the average house price in Toronto and Vancouver. Average. Mm-hmm. You're paying $68,000 in interest each year. For a million dollar house that you, if you put, it's 1.2 million, you put $200,000 down. Isn't that insane? It really is. I, I think there is going to be these stories that come up in the next six months for sure. I think they know that it's more heavily weighted in terms of these refis in 24 and 25. I think from, I think Bob Elliott actually had a big long thread on this that we actually went over probably two or three months ago in relation to this. And I think that's probably where they're kind of looking to is that, that glut of, of consumer or of mortgage debt coming up at that time. Mm-hmm. Doesn't change the fact that even though, especially with, we, we can see how information today and or negative connotation information today can really speed up a, narrative and or a market movement and or a crash or whatever it might be in a very short amount of time so it is still it it, i I have had i can go into my own personal stories or with clients and and discussing the exact same things that you just talked about and i think some of it i think needs to be mediated by the fact that we need to rejig our expectations on what it is that's affordable and what do we need super true for sure because i mean I'm assuming, and not to put these people in a box, I don't know them. Obviously, you just said clients. So 
whatever their expectations is on getting a million dollar mortgage, like, you know, whatever that home is, like, do we need it? Now the problem then becomes there's these homes that are available on the market. And if they're not, if people aren't looking for them, then who are they going to sell to and what are they going to sell for? Mm-hmm. And so this is the the, le- the levers that get pulled. That's the, such the, the most interesting part of, of the housing market in general is that it's always <laughs> the demand and supply uh, levers that are being pulled in either direction, which is then obviously directed by the financial markets is very, it's just very, it, it's unpredictable. There's no way to know. I'm sure you and I, Again, six months ago, talking about housing, we would not, we would have everyone, and I think you can read about this in quite a few spots. If you look back six months ago, were to say there's going to be a how like the the affordability of housing is going to improve in the next six months, and that really has not happened at all. If you look at the average home prices and what's selling and what's up in the market right now. People are still anchored to those 2021 prices that you talked about. They're more than happy to, right now it seems like anyway, sit on things because they're probably in a position where they are, they can still afford to live in the house, but they are looking to downsize or looking to move out or whatever it might be. And so there's a lot of staring contests going on. And I th- it's just like to your point, I think the next six months will be very telling just because now that we have this rhetoric that there's going to be no cuts till middle of 2024. That's essentially what's being said. It's mm-hmm. my understanding, like Q2 of 2024 kind of be what is now being priced in or now being ex- expected based off the rhetoric that's coming out of the, the Fed and the Bank of Canada. So there's going to be more volatility i think in the canadian housing market as a result of this because there is going to be like if we were i think we broke it down and said like between 40 and 60 percent of that of those refis on on mortgage debt is going to occur in starting in kind of the middle of 2024 Mm -hmm. so if that's kind of if they have to look at it from the approach of well we have to take care of or we have to address this issue that's going to affect the most people so we're going to put it off as long as we can until it's 60% of households that are having to go through this rather than 10% maybe or 5% over the next six months. So it, it will be, it's, it's, I can't sit here and say, I, I think this is going to happen by October because I truly don't know. And I don't no. think, you know, either, obviously we don't speak in those kind of exact black and white terms, but it is going to start. And you're going to hear more of these stories about people either, you know, you talk about someone who's in a market for a home like that. Like we obviously need to, address the fact there's plenty of people who are going to be in the in the market of you know the 200 300,000 homes and it's that's a trickle down effect the same thing happens obviously based off of income levels and 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 you know personal debt levels etc and it's i think we're going to unfortunately be hearing a lot more about these stories on you know individuals um, that we might hear you know from your neighbors and from your friends and family and then i think obviously nationally as well just in terms of the the news cycle i think this is going to be something yeah. that comes up a lot more often especially with an election incoming 100 percent, yeah so i'm the conservative government i'm talking about this every day of the week you would assume but you know they'd much rather talk about other dumb things yeah anyway without getting into <laughs> politics um the only other thing that i don't think i'm not sure if you were going to share but that to, to loop back on your s&p 500 like there is a tweet from is it nick Maggiolini? nick majuli majuli okay not great with italian names the breakdown of how many of those so joel mentioned the like seven stocks making up the 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 bulk of the gains uh for the s&p 500 so 
Number of stocks accounted for S&P 500 gain by year. 2017, 203 stocks. 2019, 328. 2020, 60. 2021, 258. 2023, seven. So less than 1% of what makes up the S&P 500 in terms of number of companies accounting for the gains. So when you see that information and to your point about reversion to the mean, et cetera, that's the, you're looking at this and saying, well, we need, we need to be cautious. You need to be a lot more aware of the fact that something that is usually more diversified in terms of the gain is now being, it's very, very specific to these seven companies, these seven companies decide to, and to your point, the about earlier, sorry, talking about we, we live in a quarter by quarter economy mm-hmm. and how well things are going. So if three of these stocks have a not so great quarter, <laughs> what's happened to the S&P 500? Hey, I didn't want to draw that out, but you decided to. So in the in the um, interest of time here, I'm going to talk about, um, or I'm going to quote something from a really good um post this is one of my recommendations of the week and this is from fred wilson who has a really fantastic blog that i'm going to quote or put into um, our newsletter the combination of computer science advances in machine learning decentralized systems blockchains and new forms of of interacting with compute chat interfaces heads-up display voice etc presents the most potent cocktail of innovation i've ever seen we are also seeing amazing scientific advances in areas like renewables clean energy, health, and wellness, robotics, and many other areas. So for those who don't know who Fred Wilson is, he runs the largest venture capital firm in New York City. He is like objectively probably a top three venture capitalist and private equity guy on earth. Very impactful person. Um, He's got a phenomenal blog. I think it's called ABC, but he runs Union Square Ventures. Very important man. And I think his, his blog, he's constantly, I've been reading it since 2012, probably. And this guy is right a lot. And to say that someone who's been so early to so many things, like early 2000s, he started his career, um, is talking about how this is the brightest he's ever seen our future. That's pretty incredible. And um, a listener of the podcast, Justin Evans, actually sent me a really good uh, interview of Jason Kalkanis and Gavin Baker. This is my second second recommendation where he talks about the future, but mostly in the context of semiconductors, chips. He he gives a really good um, breakdown of how he sees this compounding out into the future and what he views as a risk, what he views as an opportunity. And it was uh, really refreshing, even though Calcanus is annoying. Um, Gavin Baker is much more, he, he just, he does it, he makes it so it's understandable so for succinct. someone as dumb yeah. as me. Yeah. And that's really nice. Um, it's a little 40-minute interview, and um, I'm going to post that in the newsletter as well. But those are my two recommendations. I don't um, have anything else. Okay, so that was a pretty good way of dancing around that question. That was very political of you. That's good. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so yeah, the other, I think the other, other two things we wanted to just quickly touch on, obviously we like to uh, follow up on, on discussions we've had from the previous week. And so wanted your quick takeaway from the U.S. Open. We talked about golf a lot, uh, the, the, the news in golf and kind of the momentum they had in terms of t- taking up oxygen with, with the – 
the the live the merger there's obviously now the backlash from that going there's they're going to have some senate hearings and all the major parties involved are going to be part of some questioning and hearings uh in regards to the <laughs> the backdoor dealings of that or the boardroom dealings that we we chatted about last week and we'll see where that goes i guess i think at the end of the day you'd like to assume that everything's going to end up fine usually does in, in these kind of situations when you got a bunch of powerful people with a lot of money involved. But with that being said, they had all of this momentum, all of this oxygen going into their, I would say, marquee event of the year, the U.S. Open, being held at one of the most exclusive oh. country clubs in L.A. with the backdrop of essentially Hollywood and downtown L.A. In the, Playboy in the, Mansion. Yeah, yeah, they're on the course. Yeah, exactly. And by and large, it was a flop. And so I, I, I know you probably watched a little bit here and there throughout the weekend. I think this is less so about the product of the golf per se. Like you always have the chance of it being exciting. Like, sun, you know, you, you work for Stacked three. Stacked leaderboard. Stacked, yeah. For like you, I mean, with golf, obviously, at the end of the day, it's like it all depends on Sunday. You got three days that could be entertaining. You have the people that you're following, good stories, etc. But realistically, it's the last nine holes on Sunday that make or break the ratings for the weekend or or how exciting a golf tournament is, how successful it is, et cetera. And they kind of had that, I would say. It was a little bit less. It could have been more drama-filled, but the the eventual winner was pretty much rock solid the last six holes. So there wasn't. it didn't end up being the same kind of dramatic ending. But the real story from the weekend, I think, in, in, in my point, so I'm answering for you. I asked you what your thoughts were, and now I'm just talking. But the... The USGA, who kind of runs this event and, and largely has usually the gavel with making decisions, sounds like the LA Country Club said, okay, like we're really happy that you're here and we're happy that we're getting this promotion and, and showing how awesome our club is. However, we don't want 300,000 people like Yahoo's going around our country club because we have, we're the most exclusive private club in LA or potentially in the US. And we don't want people yelling, Baba Booey and <laughs> Nash Potatoes on <laughs> the first hole. So we're going to limit ticket sales to, I think it was like less than 40,000 a day or something like that, or like 50,000 a day. And of those 50,000 tickets, like half of them were bought up by members and then just not used. So you're essentially going around that. It would look like it was like a COVID year again with like fans not allowed mm-hmm. in some of those holes. Disappointing. And I think that this speaks to a few things. I've always appreciated that the U.S. Open went to public golf courses. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was the appropriate way to go about it. Um, I think that going to these exclusive clubs is interesting to see inside of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, one of my favorite YouTube channels is literally a guy that goes and he um, he's a regular five handicap, eight handicap guy. And he goes and he plays exclusive golf courses. His most recent one was going to Bighorn in, in, um, in Palm and mm. Bighorn's $350,000 for $400,000 to get a membership. And then it's like 40,000 a year to be a member <laughs> expensive, yeah. right? Um, they got, they got food on every three holes. You can't use cash on course. Um, it's, it's exclusive. It's nice. Um, but in this case, I think that the U.S. Open, similar to the U.S. Open in tennis and mm-hmm. U.S. events in general, it is ex- that's not what America is, mm-hmm. at least in my uh, opinion. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's rowdy it's free it's everyone gets to to attend mm-hmm. and this was the america that i think a lot of people this is like makes this this is the country club like um brand or like that they want to move away from this is yeah. not what you don't want golf to no, associate with that you is, want it to be for everybody like you said well this is like the richest people on the planet the houses on this golf course are average 18 million dollars us like what Mm -hmm. you know it's just not what golf wants to be it's what golf used to be i think you made a really good point there and um i have i'm i have all the time in the world for these clubs i think that they should exist um however they shouldn't be the us open venues in my opinion Mm -hmm. us open venues should have unlimited access they should have 12 rows deep of of fans they should have people yelling mashed potatoes. That's what it's supposed to be, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I was disappointed, sad to see. Um, Wyndham Clark is a good champion, um, great golfer, played a very solid tournament with a incredibly um, intimidating field behind him. Mm-hmm. I think that he deserves all of um, that win. But and his name's Wyndham, so it fit perfectly with. This the country club, <laughs> yeah, like good for him. Though. I think that uh, this is not where it belongs. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. They're trying to show where yeah. golf is, and that's what oftentimes what the U.S. Open does. But it's they're going to get it again, from my understanding. Twenty thirty nine. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure they will take a different approach to it that next time because largely it, from my understanding and talking to or talking to listening to folks in the golf world, it was definitely an the players did not they were actually pretty vocal about the fact that the atmosphere sucked mm-hmm. and obviously when you got players spouting off on that that it's an issue and who are already ticked off with how <laughs> things have been going the last couple of weeks they don't they were obviously very um forthcoming about their opinion on that and there was yeah multiple guys like high profile guys talking about how the the atmosphere was very subpar and that even the course itself wasn't set up in the way that they were expecting because again to the point of the fact that it's a very exclusive club none of these guys had really played the course before yeah outside of practice rounds. i kind of like that part over i i do like that in the sense that it should have made it more challenging but you had records sent that was more weather related the fact that records were sent in terms of scoring on on the thursday but i think the yeah just the general the general sentiment around it was not positive. And so I think obviously the focus and you could tell even in the production and, and, and on TV, it was very golf focused. They did not talk about everything else. It didn't have a lot of camera shots outside showing fans that they normally would. So you can tell that they were probably like after Thursday, Friday, they're like, okay, we just need to focus on the product of the sport itself and just make sure or hope that some dramatics come out of it. And it did, but um, but generally I think they're going to have to take another approach to this and like it though. I'm sure I'm not sure where the U S open is next year, but I'm sure they'll be right back to a uh, quote unquote traditional, uh, atmosphere for that. And back to wing know, foot back to, yeah, back to something that's just going to hammer it rough up to the knees yeah. and, and all the guys who can't hit it three twenty are going to lose. Yeah. Which is, but again, it's, I think it's again, more about their atmosphere and brand and, and what that should be. And obviously there's just been a lot of positives, uh, Positives and or just lots of newsworthy things in golf lately, and unfortunately, it was a bit of a of a down week for them in in that sense. But wah, wah. maybe next week we'll get to uh, the messy deal. And um, yeah, there's been lots of news on that. I th- yeah, we can we can get into more detail on that next week. I think there's actually probably more information coming out onto his deal on that. But very very interesting to see him 
and I can talk about heat pumps. So that should be really fun. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. but heat pumps first. Yeah, HVAC, <laughs> air conditioning, heat pumps, and messy going to Miami. Perfect. All right, buddy. I look forward to talking to you next week.